All right, so um, I'm going to tell you guys something about myself, and you can't judge me for it, all right? That's the thing, right? When there's somebody up here, you never judge them for what they say, right? That's the rule. Um, nervous laughter. Uh, it's a joke, okay? Um, but you can't judge me for this. I'm going to tell you something about myself. You can't judge me for it, and it's this. I like pop music, okay? I like pop music, all right? So like the top 40 radio hits, uh, I like it. I don't like all the music. A lot of it, I think, is bad, and even of the top 40, like it's usually like 39 out of 40 I don't like, but... There's usually one song every few months or every couple of years that just comes along that's pop music that just gets, that just like latches itself onto my soul and I just can't get enough of it, okay? I'm still, I'm still there with Katy Perry's Firework, okay? Like I'm still, like it's still, it was 2010 when I heard it, it's still like, I'm still singing it, I'm still loving it. There's just something about uh, pop music that I, I just really enjoy and again, I don't like all of it but usually every few months there's some song somewhere that kind of la- speaks to my soul, speaks to me, or I just even just like the beat, and I just really uh, get into pop music. And the reason I say don't judge me is because a lot of times pop music is kind of like, we all kind of judge pop music as being kind of like trite, vapid, shallow music. But what I've noticed as I've listened to pop music is every once in a while, one of these songs has a line in it that puts something way better than I ever could have put it. Like it says something in a way that I could have never said. And it really, even in just a few words, describes an experience that I couldn't describe even as eloquently as this particular line in a song does. And so the, the song that's kind of recently got a hold of me over the last maybe year or two is a song by Kesha. Okay, so it's a song by Kesha. I can't, I don't know the rest of the body of her work, so don't judge me. But there's this song by Kesha that started coming on the radio, and it was called Praying. And it's kind of like this ballad. And I think the backstory of this song, Praying, uh, is basically there were, she had this agent who treated her horribly and did all these horrible things to her. And then she kind of comes out of this season where I think she wins some of the legal battles that she had with this kind of agent who, who did a lot of horrible things to her. And then she writes this song. And in this song, there's a line in there that has just stuck with me. But this song, it's all kind of about her, like, healing, in a sense, from this horrible relationship that she had with this guy. And it's, it's actually really beautiful. Throughout the song, the course of the song is she's saying, hey, I hope about this guy. I think it's the agent. I might be totally botching the backstory on that song. But she, the story, she's saying, I hope that this guy that's done all these horrible things to her, I hope he's somewhere praying. I hope he's somewhere changing. I hope somewhere essentially like God is doing something to him so he's no longer evil. And then what she also says throughout the song is that she herself is praying for this guy. She's praying for this guy that had done these horrible, terrible, evil things uh, to her. And then there's this one point in the song where she begins to talk about how hard it's been for her to forgive this guy. And she says this line that she, it's kind of like this, this isn't the line, but this is right before the line. She says this line where she says, Whoa, oh, some say in life, 
You're going to get what you give. Okay, so she's saying, hey, I know I'm supposed to forgive this guy. I know that if I don't give him forgiveness, I might not give it, get it back at least. And she's going, at least that's what society says is if you want forgiveness, you got to give forgiveness. And she's going, I know some people say that. And then she says this line, and this, is the, this line, these seven words, I think it just describes so much of the human experience. And it packs so much punch in just seven words. And then she says this, but some things... Only God can forgive. And then she goes, ah, like, and so, okay, she does it. And I do it with her every time, okay? All right? To repeat what she says, she says, but you guys are really surprised by that. Uh, but she said, she goes, but some things only God can forgive. She's wrestling with, she's wrestling with if she can even forgive this guy and she says, no, but there's only some things only God can forgive. I cannot feel like a bet. There's like no better way to tell someone what they did was evil. Right? That line just packs so much punch. I don't think she's like making a moral statement saying she shouldn't forgive him necessarily. I think she's saying that despite all her praying good for him, despite that thinking that maybe even she wishes she could give forgiveness to this guy, that everything he did was so horrible to her, was so evil to her, that only God is powerful enough to forgive that. Seven words describing a lot of the human experience. And instantly, for anyone listening to that song that has had horrible sins done to them, they hear that line and they resonate with it. They go, this describes my experience. Like, this, is, this describes what it's like when someone has done all these horrible things. Or if you're someone else who has a hard time forgiving me, uh, what, when you hear that line, you go, this line does, does, does a great job showing how hard it is to forgive someone sometimes. This line in this song that's just seven words, it packs so much punch. It, it describes so much of the human experience. It describes so much of what it feels like to forgive at times. And today we're in the book of Colossians. And the vast majority of the verses that we're going to be in today is probably a song. It's at least a poem, but it was probably a hymn of the early church. And you'll probably hear me refer to it the rest of the sermon as a hymn of the early church or a song of the early church. And we don't know where the song exactly came from. Paul and Timothy could have wrote it. It could have been something that was just circulating the early church that they were singing. Or it could have been like a Jewish song that the Christians took and kind of reappropriated under the name of Jesus. And what we are going to see is this song is all about Jesus. And the lyrics in this song, in Colossians, where we'll be at today, each lyric just packs a punch. And each lyric helps us see more about Jesus than even just what the words are saying. Like there is something about this song that just packs a punch. You see, poems and songs in general, they have an ability to say things when there's no other way to say it. Poetry can even show how all things are, are connected together. And in the Bible, when you see songs and poetry, that's exactly what it's doing. It's trying to say something in a way that there's just no other way to say it. 
Often poetry in the Bible is trying to show how all things are connected. And we're going to see in this poem, this hymn about Jesus, a much bigger vision of Jesus and how Jesus is connected to everything. It seems to me that Paul and Timothy want to use this hymn to shape the church in Colossae. It seems to me that Paul and Timothy want this new church in Colossae, we talked about that last week, that they are a new church, probably, uh, to have a huge vision of who Jesus is. I don't think they just want the church in Colossae to just see Jesus as just an earthly rabbi. They want the church in Colossae to see that Jesus is so much bigger than what their eyes can even see, even if Jesus was right there in front of them. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to go through this poem, this song, this hymn, and the few verses after it, and I just want it to give us a bigger vision of who Jesus is. We're going to go through these hymns, and we're going to unpack some of these song lyrics together. And I'm going to just pull different things. At moments, I'll pull the exact lyric. At moments, I'll kind of describe some of the lyrics together. And all of it will point to who Jesus is. All of the things that I pull out will point to Jesus, who Jesus is. And we're actually going to look at eight things, okay? Eight things that this hymn says about Jesus, that tells us about Jesus, that will give us a bigger vision, a grander vision, a broader vision, a more beautiful vision of Jesus. Jesus is not just some earthly guy. He's much more than that. And this hymn in Colossians helps us to see some of that much more, okay? And so the goal today is, it's really simple. Let's make our view of Jesus bigger. Let's make it bigger, Okay, and so the, today's sermon, it is very much a just let's look at the vastness and bigness of Jesus type of a sermon. Does that make sense? Okay, let's hop into it. Let's get into Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 15. I'm going to read the whole passage before uh, we get into it. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles at the little tables by the doors. The words will be on the screen. I'm going to take a drink because my, my throat is dry. Probably that singing um, that, that did it. Uh, all right. Verse 15 says this, and it's talking about Jesus. The he there is Jesus because it's following from verse 14. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Okay, 
So let's stop there. And let's begin to look at all of the things that this hymn says Jesus is. The first, the first key, key phrase I want us to look at is this hymn says that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Right? Israel's God was known to, to be invisible in this sense because he said, hey, you can't carve something to represent me. He, Israel's God was known to be invisible because he was so holy, he was so transcendent, he was so set apart from all of creation in one sense, even though he comes into it and interacts with creation, he was so set apart that he can't be seen. He doesn't have a form to be seen, and yet this song in Colossians says, actually, there is a form of God. It's Jesus. There is an image of God to be seen. It's Jesus This is powerful language here. What this hymn is saying about Jesus is if you want to see God with your eyes, look at Jesus. This invisible God who's transcendent and holy and beyond all, he can be seen. It's by looking at Jesus. That means if you read the Gospels, you're going to see God talk. You're going to see God eat. You're going to see God walk. You're going to see God love. You're going to see God look. You're going to see God hang out. You're going to see God do all sorts of things. You're going to be actually seeing God when you read the Gospels. Because the Gospels tell us about Jesus and his life. One thing, I think we're all really blessed because we live on the other side of the resurrection. And so the Holy Spirit has come to God's people. And so in one sense, we get to experience God and see God because of the Holy Spirit. Kind of like that first song we sang, Taste and See. That happens because of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes I think we we, we rely too much on some kind of an experience in order to know that God is real, in order to see God, when right here in this song it says, hey, Jesus is the image of God, which means this, friends, you can experience and know God just by reading the Gospels. Like, you can just read them, and hey, maybe you're not feeling it, maybe you don't, it doesn't feel like an experience. As you look at Jesus in the Gospels, you're seeing God. Because Jesus is the image of God. That's powerful language. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. Another thing about that kind of language there in this this image language in this hymn in Colossians is it, it also harkens back to a fundamental identity of humanity. Like each and every human is made in the image of God. And so I think what we find out here from this hymn in Colossians is Jesus is the image that every human image was based off of. Jesus, God in the flesh, is the most truly human human, even though he's God in the flesh. He is the truest and greatest image of what it means for us to be human. To be fully human. Are you beginning to see how some of these lyrics pack a punch and harken back to all sorts of things about who God is and what he's trying to say about himself? Jesus is the image of God. If you want to see who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to see what humanity is supposed to be, look at Jesus. Okay, the next key phrase I want us to look at uh, is probably the, the most confusing phrase in this hymn. 
And it's this, it's Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Okay, so the reason that this phrase is confusing is on a face reading, it kind of sounds like Jesus was just like the first thing ever created. Okay, if you just read it on a face value reading, you go, it's, it just sounds like maybe this is, Jesus was the first thing created and everything else was created. But that's not quite what's happening here. Okay, because we know it's not happening here because then it kind of goes on to talk about how all of the created things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, because of Jesus. And so the song would be contradicting itself. It would be saying that, that Jesus created all created things, and then if we read it that way, we'd be also saying, then, but Jesus was a created thing. So the song would contradict itself. What we have to realize is a few things about that term firstborn in order to understand what this song is trying to say. Uh, it's not talking about order. It's talking about status. And what we'll see is not only did culture view that phrase with some significant values to it, but even in the Old Testament, the poetic language around that phrase was not in a literal order sense. And so first, what we have to know about that firstborn uh, word is in the in all of the cultures up until that day, maybe not all of them, but in the cultures that this letter was written to, the Greco-Roman culture, a firstborn child of a family had a lot of privileges. Essentially, they got the, to inherit the, the parents' entire estate. Everything, when the parents died, went to that firstborn child. Now, in the Old Testament, in, in Israel, and amongst the Jewish people, the firstborn had all sorts of privileges too. They, they had all sorts of inheritance privileges, but they also had certain blessings and dedications that went to them as the firstborn. They've had responsibilities to care for the family as the firstborn in, in a variety of ways. And so we have to realize that when you see that word firstborn in the Bible— it's more likely not talking about order, and it's more likely talking about the significance of that status in that day. Secondly, we have to see how the, the, the Old Testament uses that phrase itself. So uh, that phrase, firstborn, in the Old Testament, God uses to talk about Israel itself. There's places in the Old Testament where God says, Israel the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, the people that God rescued out of Egypt and formed into this people. He says, Israel is my firstborn. And so what you can see is in biblical language, this firstborn doesn't all, isn't always talking about a literal order here. Because the people of Israel, although they, they are a significant part of what God was doing, unfolding his restorative mission throughout the, all the earth, by uh, creating this people to be a display people, God had made many humans before Israel. God had hung out with many humans before Israel was a, was a thing. He had done things through many people before Israel was a people. He had even made covenants with people before Israel was Israel. And so what we have to realize is that when God is saying firstborn, he's not talking about order, he's talking about status. He's saying there's some significant privileges and responsibilities that come with being my firstborn. And then also another place where we see this firstborn language is Psalm 89, uh, which talks about this future person, who, this future king figure who's going to come and save Israel and restore Israel to all the things that God had promised for them. And it says this in that Psalm 89. It says, I will make him, that king, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
And so what we can see there is whoever this king was, which is Jesus, the poetic language in the psalm is saying, I will make him a firstborn. He's not saying that I'm going to order him and make sure he's a firstborn, although Jesus was a firstborn. But he's trying to say that he's going to be like a firstborn was known in that day, to have privileges, honor, uh, inheritance. And so uh, in Jewish poetic language, being firstborn had much more to do with status rather than order. In Jewish culture, the firstborn had all sorts of privileges. And so right here in this confusing phrase that Paul and Timothy use, they're not saying that Jesus was the first thing ever created. They're saying that he's the Davidic king that has come into history by the power of God, and he has a status and a privilege above anyone else in all of creation. Even though Jesus wasn't the first human born on earth, he is the firstborn over all of the earth is what this hymn is trying to say. Think status, not order. If it helps, the early church, one of the first huge uh, conversations or debates in the early church was about the nature of Jesus. And, and where they landed was, Jesus is God and he's one with God. That's where they landed. And that's where the, where the Christians all landed. It was one of the, and it was a, it was a dogfight. Like it was a big, it was a huge uh, moment in the early church. And so uh, as confusing as that phrase can be, don't get kind of stuck on the confusing nature on it and don't miss what it's actually trying to say. That phrase is trying to say, he, Jesus is over all of creation. The way a firstborn child was over all of his parents' estate. Okay. Jesus is the firstborn over creation. He's over all of it. Okay? All right, um, let's go to the next phrase. The next thing I want you to see about Jesus is Jesus is the creator and holder of the universe. Jesus is the creator and holder of the universe. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase Scott McKnight. He says this, Jesus is the source of life in creation. He is the agent of creation, and he is the reason for which everything was created. So creation itself would not be made without Jesus' life-giving power. Creation itself was made by Jesus, and creation was made for Jesus. Jesus made the universe and it's for him, and he holds the universe together. That's what this hymn says. Jesus is a lot bigger than we think of him sometimes. He made the universe. The universe is for him, and he holds it all together. Your breathing is guided by Jesus right now. Gravity stays in place because Jesus holds it in place. Our ozone layer and atmosphere don't just dis, dis, dissipate, disappear into space because Jesus allows it to hold together here over the earth. Jesus is the creator and the holder of the universe. How many of us walk through life thinking about Jesus in such a divine way, with such a high view of him, where he holds the universe together. But that's what this hymn says. He's the creator and holder of the universe. Okay, the next thing that we, uh, we've got to see about Jesus here is he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. We, we use this language a lot. 
We use this language a lot, so it becomes trite language for us, I think, but it really shouldn't become trite for us. This language about Jesus being the head and we are his body should be weighty language. It should cause a reverence in us. Jesus has knit himself to his people in such a way that he's like a head and they're like his body. Jesus has made us, his people, to be his body. That should be weighty to us. Just because we say it all the time doesn't mean we should take away from the weightiness of it. Jesus has knit himself to us in such a way that he's the head of us and we're his body. He's invited us in. He's allowed us to be his hands, his feet, his arms, his legs, his body. That's, that's wild. That should cause a healthy fear and trembling in us of God. That should cause a reverence in us. I think the world gets this. There's like all these non-Christians out there, they're, they're kind of judging us Christians all the time, and sometimes I'll even say it's unwarranted in my opinion, but often it's warranted, and it's right, because they understand something about our identity that I think we miss sometimes. They understand our identity as, is as the body of Jesus. They get it. Every time you hear the world saying, why aren't the Christians loving this way? Why aren't they doing this right? Why aren't they following Jesus this way? What we should hear, instead of be defensive and defend ourselves, we should go, they understand that we're supposed to be the body of Jesus. They're getting that. It's almost like this weird spiritual thing has happened in our society where God is using non-Christians to prophetically speak to the church and say, hey, you're missing something here. You're the body. You're the body of Christ, and no one's seeing you for that. This language of Jesus being the head of the church should be weighty to us. It should cause reverence in us. We are Jesus' actual body. He's the head. I, I, can't, I can't believe it. Do we approach our identity in Christ with that sort of mindset, with that sort of reverence? towards the fact that he's knit us together as his body and he's knit to us as the head. That is a wild thing. And we're so much so his body that this next thing that I want to talk about is true for us, is true for us too. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Here's what we know. Jesus wasn't actually the first ever raised from the dead. I think there was a little boy or a little girl in the Old Testament. There was a little girl that Jesus raised. There was Lazarus. There might be a few others I'm forgetting. But Jesus' resurrection gave him authority over resurrection itself. And he will use that resurrection power to give life to all that cry out to him. So Jesus is the first fruits, as Corinthians says. He is the firstborn of the dead, meaning that his resurrection is ushering in new creation and resurrection itself is being ushered in by Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, meaning there will be many more resurrected along with him. Because he is sharing now his inheritance as a firstborn. And his inheritance includes resurrection. And now he's sharing that inheritance of resurrection with all of us. So don't gloss over the fact 
that in Jesus, the new creation and resurrection has been ushered in and will completely be ushered in one day when he returns. All right, next phrase that I want us to look at is this. Jesus is the fullness of God. The God of the universe. All of him is in Jesus. This is, this is, a, this is a mystery. This is a mystery. I, I think um, in our culture, it's, it's just like super popular to believe that every religion has a little bit of, of truth. And I actually agree with that. I think every religion does have a little bit of truth. You can even find different Christians throughout history who have said, yeah, every religion has a little bit of truth. And kind of the thing that, that uh, gets described a lot is like everybody, every religion, it's like touching an elephant. And they all know the part of the elephant, but they're blind, so they can only describe the part they're touching. I, I, I appreciate that analogy, but I think what this uh, hymn in Colossians is trying to do and what Paul and Timothy are trying to do is say, Jesus is all of the fullness of God. He's not just part of the fullness of God. He's not just partial truth. Jesus is the whole elephant, which sounds blasphemous. But you get what I'm trying to say. If you want to see God, if you want to see the fullness of God, if you want the fullness of truth, look at Jesus. He's not just part of the truth. He's not just some of the truth. He is all of the truth. Any other things that are true are true because of him. Jesus is the fullness of God. God has displayed the fullness of himself in Jesus. If you want to see the fullness of God, if you want to know the fullness of reality, if you want to know the fullness of truth, look at Jesus because that's where we find the fullness of God displayed. If you're looking for God, find him in Jesus. That's where you can find the complete, whole God of the universe. It's in Jesus. Okay. And then also in these verses, the next thing I want us to see about Jesus is Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. There is this problem between God and all of creation. God is a holy, transcendent God whose very presence just like annihilates sin. And then creation has this problem. Sin permeates all of creation. Sin just permeates all of creation. Go through the Bible. You're going to see sin is not just moral actions and behaviors of people, but it is a power that permeates all of creation. That's how deadly and, and evil sin is. Sin is, it, it permeates so vastly that it even permeates the, all, all the wonderful gifts of creation. It, it permeates all the wonderful people of creation. All the people that we go, I'm sure that person is a great person or a good person. Sin permeates them as well. And because of sin's permeation of all of creation, how sin goes throughout all of creation, it needs to be reconciled to God because God is holy. There is a problem between God and all of creation, and a reconciliation needs to happen. Someone has to come and make things right between God and creation itself. And Jesus is that someone. He is the agent of reconciliation. Jesus, as God, takes on the flesh of creation— and so I can't think of a better agent of reconciliation than Jesus. And Jesus 
reconciles all of it, spiritual, physical. You saw that. It said heavens and earth, thrones, rulers, dominions. Jesus reconciles every last bit of it by his blood shed on the cross. And so friends, don't miss this part, but all of creation is reconciled by Jesus, the agent of reconciliation. We evangelicals, we love an individual spiritual reconciliation with God that happens in our hearts only. And that's really important to God. And we should never uh, forget how important that is to God. But Jesus' reconciliation was way bigger than a spiritual, individual reconciliation with God that only happens in our heart. God's reconciliation with, cre- with creation is all of creation, not just in our little hearts. That's how, powerful, that's how powerful God's blood is. Thank you, Moppet. That's how powerful Jesus' blood is. It reconciles all of creation. One day, God is going to be able to come back to his creation and live in the midst of it because of Jesus' blood on the cross. He's not going to come back just into our hearts one day. God's not going to transport us to some other dimension called heaven and we just live with him there forever. God's mission is to reconcile all of creation, restore all of creation. God is, Jesus' blood has done a work that has now made heaven and earth united once again. And it will be forevermore. We have to have a view of reconciliation as one that views it as, be, as God reconciling all of creation, not just some of creation. As important as the reconciliation in our hearts is, it's very important. But we, we truncate, we minimize the reconciliation of Jesus' blood on the cross when we say it, it just happens in our hearts. That's not what this hymn says. That's not what a lot of the Bible says. God's reconciliation permeates all of creation as well. In another place, Paul says that we, our identity now as the saints of God, as the people that believe in Jesus, he says that we are now ministers of reconciliation. Ministers of reconciliation. And this reconciliation language in the New Testament is this language that reconciles all people to God and all creation to God. So let me, let me spell out what I'm trying to say for everybody in, in the room uh, that has had a hard time with Christian unity over the last couple years. When you're arguing over if Christians are supposed to do good deeds and live justly in the world, just stop. Just stop. Because Jesus has and is reconciling all things to himself. His cross did it once and for all, but in the meantime, his cross will work out through his people in reconciling works. If you don't believe me, just read the next passage in Colossians that we'll talk about next week. His cross, once and for all, did all the work that was needed, but it continues to work through his people as God's patience, as God really patiently and mercifully waits to restore all things. And so we need to have a fuller, more holistic view of Jesus' reconciliation. Jesus is not interested in just doing a work in our hearts. Jesus is interested in doing a work in every created thing and every facet of each created thing. 
And now listen, our, our efforts as ministers of reconciliation, they are futile if we don't center them on the blood of Jesus and proclaim Jesus' blood as the reason for our work of reconciliation. In fact, I think we should maybe run from Christians that kind of say Jesus' blood isn't needed in reconciliatory work in any way. We should, that, that's not biblical. That's not what Jesus has shown us. But it's astounding to me, in, in light of all that, that, that we, over the last two years, we've told Christian after Christian that believes in the blood of Jesus, that doing good restorative works of all sorts, and in particular in regards to justice, that they aren't believing the gospel. The good news I'm seeing in Scripture is a good news that says, good news, Jesus' blood has restored not just your hearts, but all of creation. And now Jesus invites, and really, actually, and now we respond to that reconciliation that Jesus has done in us by going and being people of reconciliation. We are people, we are ministers of reconciliation, and Jesus' reconciliation permeates all of creation. This is, why we try, well, this is why we say all of life is all for Jesus. This is why we do interviews with every kind of career and say, how does your career itself image God? Because we believe that Jesus' blood reconciles everything. That's what we believe. Reconciliation is a lot bigger than some of us, what some of us think. Okay? All right, finally, I want to look at this last thing. I want to look at Jesus here as the body donor. Jesus, the body donor. Let me read verses 21 and 22. It says this. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So again, this is the second time in this letter that Paul and Timothy have taken uh, the Colossians and said, here's where you used to be and here's where God has placed you. You used to be hostile, angry, aggressive towards God, even doing sinful things. God has now made you holy, faultless, blameless because of Jesus' blood. And what we see here in these verses is what Jesus used to do that. He used his own body, which transforms the people who are hostile and away from God and doing evil into a people who are holy, blameless, and faultless, even though they're still sinners. Jesus uses his body to, to do that. And the reason I want to describe Jesus as the body donor here is because I want us to see sin a little differently than maybe we normally do. And, and it's because I think sometimes it's just, it's really hard for us to uh, believe in sin for a few reasons. One, it's just kind of our culture. Two, I just think our categories, because of our culture, our categories of evil and sin are just different than what God's actual categories are. Another reason is I think there's just a lot of good people in the world. As I see it, they just look like good people. And so then when we read the verses that say things like everybody's a sinner, it just it gets hard to believe in those things when you see such good people. And to be clear, I think everybody is a sinner. But when you see someone who's so good, sometimes that can make you go, man, it's hard for me to see sin the way that God sees sin. And then I think the other reason why it's hard for us to see sin the way that God talks about sin is because I, just, I don't think we think of sin as anything except for things that hurt somebody else. Like, if it's something we're doing and it doesn't hurt someone else, we're like, why is that sin? 
And so I, I want us to see another aspect of sin and to see sin in another way. Because I, I would have counter-arguments to all those other things that I just said. But I, I just want us to see sin as, as something else. I want us to see sin as a diseased power in all of creation. We already talked about how sin permeates all, all of creation. Now I want us to see that, that sin itself is a diseased power in all of creation. Sin is not just the wrong moral actions and behaviors of humanity, although that's part of it. But it is a diseased power that's been passed down to each and every human no matter what. So sin is a cancer in the human race. And I'm not using those words lightly. I truly believe we die as humans because of the spiritual reality of sin. I think if there was no sin, we would not die. Sin is powerful enough to cause death. And just like cancer is hostile to our own bodies, I believe sin is hostile to our own bodies and it makes us hostile to God. And you might not always be able to see how sin makes you hostile to God. Just like with cancer, you don't always know you have cancer until you get the right test or you die. I think sin works in a similar way as cancer. And because the sin of cancer is in all of us, no matter how good we seem or how awesome we seem, we need a cure. The cancerous nature of sin is ravaging the human race. And just as with a cancer or a disease, at times we need some sort of organ transplant, I actually think we need a whole body transplant. And this is why I'm calling Jesus the body donor. The cure, the transplant we need is Jesus' own body. And Jesus donated his body to us. Jesus has given us his body. Jesus is the body donor. We need a perfect body that doesn't have the, the cancerous sin flowing through its veins. And the only body that is that body is Jesus' body. And here in these verses in Colossians, we see that Jesus gave his own body to the church so that we could be holy, so that we could be blameless, so that we could be faultless. The cancer that's made us opposed to God, the cancer that has, the, cancer, the sinful cancer that in a lot of ways has, has given us an inability to see sin as we should. And this, this cancerous sin that has made us worthy of God's judgment, all of that cancerous sin needs a cure, and the cure is Jesus. The cure is Jesus' body. And Jesus has now given us his body, so even though we're sinful until Jesus returns, God now sees us like he sees his son, spotless, blameless, faultless, unstained by cancerous sin in each of us. And one day, that sinful cancer in each of us will be fully healed when Jesus returns. Jesus is the body donor. Jesus is the cure and the treatment we need. Listen, I could have just said, hey, Jesus is the better Passover lamb, but I wanted us to see another aspect of sin that maybe we don't always see. Jesus is the body donor. He's given us his body so that we might live. He's made a way for us to spend all of eternity in this good creation with him, enjoying it, enjoying him. 
And so I, I hope as, as we went through those eight things, I, I hope we have a bigger vision of Jesus. But if you don't, blame it on me and go and read the text and, and go through the, this passage and read it and write about it and write what you're seeing about Jesus and pray and ask Jesus to give you these eyes because this text says all sorts of amazing things about Jesus. It says he's the image of the invisible God. It says he's the firstborn of all creation. It says that he's the creator and holder of the universe. It says that Jesus is the head of the church. It says that Jesus is the fullness of God. It says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. It says that Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. And it says that Jesus is the body donor. May we all see all of that about Jesus in more deep and meaningful ways this morning. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. That's a good word. 2 Corinthians 5 is a good place to go there, too. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Moppet and even just how good he is at, at knowing different passages that help enforce what we're learning about you. Thank you for putting him in our midst and, and giving us eyes to see you. It's almost like you are working through your people to help us to see that this hymn is true. And so, God, this morning, I, I just ask that our vision of you is bigger, that it's grander, that it's more beautiful, that we would not, man, that we would not see you less than you are. God, we, we need a work in us to be done in order for that to happen. And so, Lord, do that work. Help us to have a bigger view of you because we need a bigger view of you. Thank you for being all those things, and thank you for showing yourself to us. Amen.